um, the book of Ephesians. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 6, 5 to 9. If you have a Bible, you can open it up there. If you're kind of leafing through the New Testament and you don't know how to find it, it's um, after the Gospels, it's after Romans. If you get into like go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn, that's where you know you're proximal. Just look for the eat, that's the Ephesians. And then go to the big six. And then that's the chapters. And the little numbers are verses that just help you uh, locate things in the Bible. So Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So brief review from last week. The overall, Ephesians is a great book if you're ever stuck and want to come back to a renewed understanding of what does it mean to live as a Christian in everyday life. Starting in chapter 4 and then 5, Paul begins building broad principles of what it means to follow Jesus in life. And then he begins to drill down into specific relationships as it relates to marriage, parenting, and then this slaves and masters. But as we talked about last week, the dynamic equivalent is much more akin to employers and employees. And so the scripture gives us these principles and instructions but they're still pretty broad. We still are tasked with figuring out and grappling with, God, how do we apply these wisely and effectively today? And so the Bible guides us, but not so much so that every minutia and detail of our lives is kind of laid out for us. That's why the Bible compels us to continually seek the Spirit's wisdom to appropriate these principles to our context. We need the Spirit's power and learning. We need to be able to, we need to ask for God's wisdom so that we can learn and grow in faithfulness. Now again, we're not going to go into this. You got to just, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the message. But the, the too long didn't read version is when people talk about slavery now and they say, well, the Bible seems to condone slavery, seems to be okay with slavery. Bible even endorses slavery, or at least it doesn't outright condemn it. That's a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible communicates because slavery then was not the same as slavery now. The kind of slavery that exists now, which is always exploitative, it's dehumanizing, it's meant to be permanent, it's abusive, it is um, not voluntary, it's coerced, it's forced. That is everything that Scripture's message is counter to, and I, I hope that we would understand that as followers of Jesus. Slavery, ancient slavery... Although it was abusive, just like there are certain work environments today that are abusive, overall it was meant to be a social safety net for those who had fallen on hard times who could sell themselves voluntarily into the slavery of another in order to survive. That was really, really important in agrarian societies. So part of the trouble comes from thinking when the Bible talks about slavery and we look at modern slavery, maybe human sex trafficking or the like, that those are the same thing, and they're not. We're comparing apples and oranges, and we need to understand that 
so that we can bring this text into its relevance today, which certainly on one level is God is against any kind of dehumanizing slavery, but probably more specifically to each of us, this is a text dealing with employers and employees, or those with authority over other people and those who have to labor under the authority of others. And so this text applies to you very directly if you are employed, if you're an employer, if you have any kind of authority over others at work or even in a volunteer capacity, if you're under the authority of other people at work or in a volunteer capacity, or you have a job that places you kind of in both categories, maybe manager or leader of an organization where there is accountability above you, but you're also responsible for to have authority over other people in order to get a certain job done. This text applies to you if you are a student in school, right? You will resonate with that language of slavery. You probably didn't choose to go to school. Maybe you're like, I don't want to go to school every day. Right now you have to, so that's not voluntary. But this applies to you. You are under the authority of someone else. That's your job. You might be a volunteer in an organization. You might be a coach. You could be a player. It's really a dynamic about leaders and followers, those with authority, those under authority. But instead of just jumping back and forth and through all of those different levels of authority, I'm just going to shorthand everything to employer-employee. But you just put that into your context. If you know, okay, I'm a student, so I'm listening to the part about slavery, okay. And if you're like, I'm retired, but I volunteer in these ways during the week, okay, so you're a slave, you're under the authority of someone to the extent that you're working for their organization and trying to fulfill their mission. So I'm just going to emphasize employer-employee just for the sake of simplicity. It's going to be up to you to adapt these principles to your context. Now that being said, this was a challenging sermon to write and to review and to prepare for, and it will probably be very challenging to hear because it really, really pushes us to think and then to respond deeply and faithfully in terms of what it means to actually follow Jesus, to not carry the name of the Lord our God in vain, but to carry it in a way that gives God glory and honor. So let's go. Verse 5. Paul writes, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So right out of the gates, there is this appeal that says, see the arena of your workplace, if you're, under the, if you're an employee, as an arena through which you can bring honor to God by interacting with your superiors up the hierarchy as if you were obeying Christ. 1 Timothy 6.1 has a similar command, also from Paul. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Paul says Christians who are under the authority of someone, and as long as they're not asked to do anything by that authority that is wrong or sinful or exploitive, um, if they're being asked to do just normal, good tasks, but they balk at that, if they resist it, if they uh, um, hesitate, if there isn't a, f a real willingness to respond to that person with eagerness and respect, God's name is slandered. One of the top commandments, do not take 
the name of the Lord your God in vain. In Hebrew, do not carry the name of the Lord your God in vanity, in, in fruitfulness, fruitlessness. So as Christians, right out of the gate, Paul says, if you're an employee, if you're a volunteer, if you're a player in a sports team, if you're a student under a teacher, you obey them, you serve them with respect and fear. And again, obedience isn't just blind mimicry of whatever they tell you to do. It's thoughtful. You know, is this a right thing to do? Is this, you know, you, we don't obey people who are telling us to do things that are wrong ever. But when we're asked to fulfill this task, we do it. We don't come up with excuses why that shouldn't be our job or we don't want to do it. With sincerity of heart, Paul says in verse 5, and that means singleness of purity or purpose. It's focused faithfulness, just as you would obey Jesus. Verse 6, obey them and obey your employers, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Now, there's a, a Greek phrase that we get translated, and it gets translated in different ways, but uh, in the NIV, it's when their eye is on you, and that word is ophthalmodulia, right, from which we get ophthalmologist, eye doctor. Ophthalmodulia literally means according to eye service. And the idea here is that he's, Paul is saying, don't just work when their eye is on you and you get noticed, right? The boss is around, quick, look busy, look like you're working. Um, or maybe we kind of have a moat, we're kind of a neutral, we're working, but it's kind of like, it's a down gear. But when the boss comes around, oh yeah, for, now I'm, I'm posturing and now I begin to work as if, this is, my, this is just the way I regularly work, I'm 120% all the time. Paul says, no, that's not the way you are to work as a Christian. You are to find that next gear, but you're to do it all the time. So that when your boss does look at you, you do find favor. Wow, I'm really glad for this diligent, hard worker. But when your employer doesn't see you, God can commend your faithfulness. Because God sees, as we're going to find out, everything. And he rewards. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Ephesians, says, The best way to be a witness on the job is to do a good day's work. And that means the Christian worker is going to avoid eye service, working only when the boss is watching, or working extra hard when he's watching to give the impression that he's actually doing a really, really good job, when he actually isn't. So it's not selective hard work, it's not selective diligence or selective faithfulness. If you're under the authority of someone else in the workplace, at school, you are to try and do your best all the time. As challenging as that is, that's the standard, that's the bar. And you can see here, this is the root of what has been traditionally called the Protestant work ethic. That in all of our labor, we work as if we're laboring to please God. We, the horizon line of who we're trying to impress goes beyond our employer or our colleagues. We work for a higher boss, a greater authority. And that fuels us with a desire well, it cautions us. It creates an internal warning mechanism against sloth. Sloth isn't valuing recreation or rest. Rest and recreation are good things um, all throughout Scripture. Sloth is how can I do the least amount of work possible and just get away with life? I have these responsibilities, but how can I just, just clear the bar 
Because honestly, I'd rather save my energy for doing these other things. And sloth is a sin. Now again, overwork is also a sin, but when we're called to do work, homework, following through in a sports practice, music lessons, whatever it is, we're called to try and focus ourselves and say, I'm going to practice to God and do the best that I can. I might be tired. I might, be, I might not be able to give my best effort today, but I'm going to try and give the best effort that I can today. Now notice that Paul says, don't worry about winning their favor, right? Do the will of God from your heart. And there's this appeal to the fact that you are now in Christ. You're a slave to Christ. You're working for him. So you should be working so that even if your boss or colleagues never acknowledge the work that you do, you know that one day you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. On that project, on that assignment, that was good. No one else saw it, but I saw it. Your father sees what is done in secret, and he will reward you. In Galatians 1.10, Paul contrasts these two ways of being in the world. You can be a worker who's trying to work to please men, or you can please God, ultimately. And in Galatians 1.10, he says, pointing to his own ministry, he says, listen, am I trying now to win the approval of human beings? Is that, is that my agenda as an apostle? Or am I trying to win the approval of God? Am I trying to please people? He says, if I were still trying to please people that I wouldn't be a servant of Jesus. And that's really interesting because that means there's a difference between doing work that other people are pleased with but doing work in order to please people. So let me ask you for a second, just throw it out if you have some ideas here. What do you think it means or what would be the difference between someone who works in order to please people around them versus ultimately seeking to please God? What would be the difference there for you, either in your own reflections or experience? Say it, say it loud so I can hear it. Right. So one is self-glorification. One is rooted in I want to please these people really because I want them to esteem me in their eyes. I, at the, the end of everything is that I get exalted, that I get the reward, I, I get the earthly reward, that I get the notoriety, that I get the credit, Right. What else does it mean to be a pleaser of God rather than a pleaser of men or of people? Self-motivation. Self Can you expand on that a little bit less? How does, how does, how does your motivation change between those two scenarios? Awesome. So in one sense, it, it, um, it really compels you into a greater level of engagement on the job when you realize the, this eight-hour shift, this three-hour shift, this is what I have to do, this is done, and I'm accountable to this before God versus some people who might not even really care what kind of a job I can do. Or maybe people around me are expecting me to mail it in. But it can also work the other way too, right? Because you might have some work scenarios that are very abusive and very toxic. And if you work to please people, you might move into patterns of overwork. You might move into patterns of fear where you're making decisions based on, oh, well, ultimately, like at the end of the day, this person controls my future. This person has leverage over me. And there's a spiritual freedom that comes from knowing at the earthly horizon, 
yeah, that is true. But do I actually believe Jesus is Lord over everything in my life, including my job? If I do, then I'm less likely to get bullied at work or bullied into decisions that aren't right. right? If you're a pleaser of men, and all of a sudden your job and people around you begin pushing you into unethical business practices, it will be a big temptation to go along with that. Because I'm relying on all these people and these connections for my job. I know it's not ideal, but ooh, what are you, you going to do? Uh, I'll just kind of go along with it and just pray that God would mitigate some of the damage and, oh, forgive me, God. But if you fear God, and I don't say this lightly because I know people who this has happened to, you may come to a position where you say, I can't be a part of this company anymore because what, how we're doing this is not right or what we're doing isn't right. So we need to change. And they might say, you're fired, see ya. So it gives you... Um, it gives you a ballast. It allows you to work harder and in a more focused way, but it also doesn't allow you to work out of fear. You can have confidence knowing who your ultimate boss is. Two resources if you want to do a bit more of a deep dive into theology of work. One is theologyofwork.org. I'll put it in the Summit newsletter on Friday. It has all kinds of devotionals, Bible commentaries, reflections, some of that are um, industry-specific. There's, there's a whole area for, like, tech industry. There's a whole area for manual labor, for service sector. So, and then uh, cross-reference through all the scripture, and there are some that are just generally speaking to employers or employees or those who are volunteering. Theologyofwork.org, excellent resource. The other book that is the, the go-to on it is Timothy Keller's Every Good Endeavor. And in Every Good Endeavor, Keller says, what makes work Christian? Like, what makes the person A, person B, Christian, not a Christian? What should distinguish that person A who's coming into the job site and seeking to do what they're doing for God? What are going to be the characteristics of their work? And he says there's four things, excellence, integrity, discipline, and enthusiasm or passion. So excellence, you're going to try and do things well. Martin Luther said, the good Christian isn't someone who makes a shoe and puts a cross on it. The good Christian is someone who makes an excellent pair of shoes. Doing things excellently speaks to God's goodness. When God created all things, he didn't just do it and say, uh, that's pretty good. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. So it doesn't matter how menial our task or how grand it is in your eyes or in the eyes of people around you or, or in the eyes of society, work well done is pleasing to God. We do work with integrity, so we do things right. We do work with focused effort, that's discipline. We don't just kind of like in a zombie-like state, move through our, our practice or our music practice or sports practice or our responsibilities, we're focused. Because there's a lot at stake here. This is a God-given assignment that I have right now. So i got to treat it as such. And then we do it with enthusiasm. Enthusia, inspirited. We do it with spirit. That does not mean you're not allowed to have bad days at work or that you're not going to experience drudgery or that you're not going to be tempted at times. To just be like, oh, I would be doing, love to be doing anything else than what I have to do right now. What it does mean is our default posture is, God, I want to be the most positive 
sincere, genuine, spirited presence that I can be over these next two hours, over these next four hours. And again, I've done all kinds of jobs, and it doesn't matter whether I was pastoring or being a janitor, that is challenging on the best of days. But doing work with excellence, integrity, discipline, and passion and enthusiasm, those are markers that we are honoring God. Those are all characteristics of those who are doing the will of God at work. Verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. First thing to notice, Paul is assuming everybody in Ephesians is serving. Everybody's working somehow. So one level of application is everybody who's sitting and hearing and listening to my voice should be working. Does that mean everyone has to be employed? Nope. But if you're retired, semi-retired, um, if you're on any kind of disability, if you're not able to fully engage, there is a way that you can volunteer for the church, volunteer for another organization. You can work. That doesn't mean you're able to, maybe because of health or whatever, put in a half-time or even full-time effort. But the default setting for a Christian is to do what they can to be a productive member of building up the church through time, energy, and money, and building up society. So every Christian at every stage of life is called to serve. And we're to do that wholeheartedly, with zeal, with passion. We don't just like, fine, I'll do it, I'll sign up, and I'll do this, and I did it. Whew, I don't have to worry about it until next month. We take a gut check, we stop, we pause, and we say, God, I only have to set up chairs right now, but I want to do that with as much zeal and, uh, and do so in a way that reflects the fact that I want to set up chairs to your glory. Paul writes to the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it as if you were serving the Lord and not people. You have a higher level of accountability. In Colossians 3.23, Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for masters. And that is really, really big because don't miss this. This command to serve and to do it wholeheartedly and to work at it with zeal, what that means is for a Christian, there is no such thing as spiritual work or ministry and then every other kind of regular, secular, unspiritual work. That is not how a Christian is to understand labor. The Bible talks about work which is pleasing to God it talks about work which isn't, but that has nothing to do with your actual role and responsibility. It's how you move through your job and to whom you do your job. Being a pastor is not a spiritual job. Being a pastor is just a job. If I pastor according to God's wills and ways, my job is spiritual and honoring to Jesus. If I pastor in a way that is not according to God's will and ways, that makes my job as a pastor unspiritual and damnable. If I am in finance and accounting, and I work hard and do everything diligently as unto the Lord, that is a spiritual job. Because it's not what we do, it's how and for whom we do things that makes things pleasing to God. And that's really, really important. Because that means... I'm not the minister, and the rest of you are just the congregants. 
we're all ministers. We just have different spheres of ministry. I am in pastoral ministry. Some of you are in financial ministry. Some of you are in service sector, care for people industry, or nursing industry, or labor industry. And that's really big because that means that all work matters to God and work done well is pleasing to God. So it doesn't matter. There, there is no, the Christian plumber is, can literally do his work in a way that makes him a hero in the eyes of the kingdom of God more than the pastor who's simply using their position in their pulpit for self-aggrandizement. That's really big. If you don't hear anything else, hear that. There's no such thing as automatically sacred and secular work or holy and unholy work. If the work that we do, if the practice that we do, if the effort that we expend is to God, then it's pleasing to him, and it's like an act of worship. Romans 12 talks about that. That was Martin Luther's emphasis on the priesthood of all believers. It was that we're all ministers. We're all meant to be a bridge in our everyday lives. It didn't matter if you were the milkmaid or if you were, like he was, a minister of the gospel. To do the work spiritually means to honor God. And so there is no position, there's no title that automatically resigns you to second-class citizen work or automatically should be imbued with, oh, you're, this is anything that this person does because of their position is spiritual and God-honoring. No. God-honoring is how we move into and through our work. And that means whether we're in sales, um, again, whether we're in finance, whether we're teaching, whether we're homemaking, the arena that we're called to minister out of when we do it with a heart to honor God, it is pleasing to God. Verse 8, this will be the last verse we look at today. Paul gives a reason why you should serve wholeheartedly, why you should give it your all. He says, because you know that the Lord will reward each for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. In that culture, obviously the rewards would go to the masters because they're at the top. But Paul says, you need to understand it doesn't really work like that in the kingdom of God. God sees everything. So even though your worldly status is employer, that doesn't mean you accrue all the benefits. An employee, you just get stuck with the short end of the stick. God, he's going to say in the next verse, there's no favoritism in the kingdom of heaven. God sees and will reward you for the work that you do if it's done to please God. This is very similar to a theme that he unpacks in the book of Colossians, when Paul says, um, you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And that's in reference to their work life, their everyday lives. And he says, you know this, which some commentators take to mean that idea that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward was part of the first Christians, uh, the first generation of catechesis where there were some like question and answers, like, what do we, you know, who is God? God is a creator of everyone and everything. Catechesis just means echo back. Simple truths of the faith that allowed everyone to get on the same page. Some commentators say this was probably one of those call and response. Will God reward the work that we do? Yes, we will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus we are serving. Now here's, buckle up. This, this is where it gets a little crazy. 
what's the inheritance? What is it? Say it louder. The kingdom of God, that is a very good answer. Uh, eternal life, okay. Any other thoughts? A crown? Probably for most of us, knee-jerk, would think of heaven, kingdom of God, um, eternal life. But think about it. Paul says, you know that you will, receive, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Are we, are we, are Christians rewarded with heaven or eternal life because of their good works? No. We already have heaven. We already have access to eternal life. We are already in some mysterious way. We've entered into the kingdom of God. So what's the inheritance? Because Paul has already established it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't from works. It's not from yourselves. You can't boast. And yet he then says there's going to be a reward. Well, that can only mean one of two things. The first is that when we do work here and now that pleases God, we will receive more rewards in heaven as a result. We don't tend to think of heaven that way. We, think, we tend to think of heaven and eternal life as sort of a across-the-board flattening of experience. But I think there's good biblical evidence to support the idea that heaven and eternity will not be experienced the same way by every person. Jesus, in teaching about wealth, said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven because they can't be stolen there. It can't be destroyed. So when we sacrifice financially now to invest in the kingdom of God in and through the local church, other Christian ministries, Jesus doesn't, call, doesn't simply call that worshiping and honoring God. That is that. He also calls it storing up treasures later which implies if you don't do that, not that you won't get to heaven, because you don't earn heaven, that's a gift, but there will be rewards or crowns that are, you won't have access to. Later, Jesus says in Matthew 16, when the Son of Man comes in glory with his angels, the second coming, he will reward each person according to what they have done. The baseline is life with God forever if we've put our trust in Jesus. But then there are gradations of the intensity of joy, apparently. It's hard. It's mysterious. But Paul motivates the early Ephesians by saying, God will reward you with a special inheritance that seems to be independent of heaven. Someone that I read once, it's not a perfect analogy, and again, we're moving into mystery here that the Bible doesn't give us details on, but, but the idea is that there will be some people, if, if heaven is a world of love, remember that, that font, um, Jonathan Edwards quote that I talked about with the kids a few weeks ago? If heaven is a world of love and this, this font of love and, joy and the greatness of God, some people, because of decisions and faithfulness that they've made now, will enter into heaven with a bigger cup to hold the glory and grandeur of God than others. 
Everyone gets a cup. And again, I know, again, I'm not trying to say some of you are going to be in heaven in the corner with your dunce cap on. I'm not saying that. That is not, that's not the application. But we want to give weight to the things that are reaffirmed from what Jesus said about the fact that there are specific rewards. And when I'm coming back, I'm not just giving everyone the same thing. I am giving rewards to Christians based on their faithfulness in stewarding what they had in their life. So the one thing that our inheritance might mean is if we work for God now, we will receive greater joy, greater treasures, whatever that means, in eternity, in the new heavens and new earth. But it might also mean, and at the risk of sounding prosperity gospel I do want to say, at the risk of that, it can mean, and in my life has meant, greater blessings here and now as God chooses to reward faithfulness in stewardship and in generosity. When Jesus, again, was teaching about money, he asked a rhetorical question to people. And he said, so we all know that if you can be trusted with a little bit, a little bit of responsibility, then you can be trusted with more. Because you've been faithful with little, people are probably going to give you more. And if you haven't been trustworthy in handling a little bit, then you're probably not going to get more because you haven't proven yourself faithful. If you're unfaithful with little, you're probably going to be unfaithful with much. And so then he asked this question. So let me ask you a question. If you have not been faithful in handling worldly wealth, even if the worldly wealth that you have is very meager, who is going to trust you with true riches? That's as hypothetical to the, to the disciples, of which the answer is obviously no one would. If I give my kids $5 and they completely squander it, the likelihood for me giving them more plummets. As little bits of faithfulness grow, I will give more opportunities. And Jesus says, not just with money, but with time, energy, and in your workplace, as a general principle, God will do the same. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he give more to those who are more generous? Why wouldn't he give more power to those who can steward power well? Now again, I don't want to make that sound mechanical or karmic, as if if I just do something right, then obviously there's going to be a drop and something, something's going to fall out of heaven. And if I do one thing good, God's going to reward me. It, it doesn't work like that. There's mystery sometimes. We do all the right things and we still lose our job or we still um, fall on hard times. But this is what I want to emphasize this morning that comes out of this text. Some people in this life, here and now, do have more than other people. They have more money. They have more influence. They have more um, uh, peace. They have more prosperity, holistically speaking, but also financially. And for some of those people, it's because they have been faithful in little things over a long period of time, and God has blessed them. It's not white privilege. It's not a result of any kind of capitulation and collusion with systemic powers. It is simply because God has seen that the work that they have done, the sacrifices that they have made, and he has determined, doesn't determine it for every believer, 
But for some, he says, I'm going to increase your influence, money, status, um, because you have been faithful. You have been faithful in little things, not perfect, but faithful. I can trust you with more. And the flip side of that coin is hard to hear, but I think we need to hear it because it is a warning and it should perpetually spur us on to love and good deeds. Some people in this life have less than other people. And it's not because they're victims of systems of oppression or injustice. It is because they have not been faithful with what God has given them at different stages of their life. And they might have had a hard go, uh, but some people who don't have a lot have had a very easy go. But they have squandered some of what God has given them. And if we believe, ultimately, all of the blessings in our lives come from God's hand, then we need to understand, A, that we have a responsibility to steward those things well, but we also better understand there are consequences, good if we steward them faithfully, and negative if we don't. And so Paul is saying to the Ephesians, you can work in your job that no one says thank you for, that is a hard job, that maybe in an ideal life you wouldn't have chosen, but this is where you are, make the best of it, and if you do, you can know that God will reward you, not just with heaven, heaven. you have heaven by virtue of the fact that you are in Christ, but you are either going to get treasures, more treasures in heaven later, because God sees your work for him now, or greater blessing and prosperity now, or for some people, both. God's sovereign, he'll um, handle that and answer it in his best way. And I'm going to stop there because verse 9 for employers needs an entire message of its own. And I want to go through this from an employer's point of view. So today is much more about just us realizing if we're working underneath someone, if we're employed, if we're laboring, if we're in a situation where we have to work under the orders of someone else, we should do it with excellence and discipline and faithfulness. So just a few summary points. How we work matters to God. We're commanded to work as if we are working for Jesus because ultimately the Bible says we are. Jesus is your boss, even in retirement. Jesus is your boss. And working well for Jesus will mean a commitment to excellence and integrity and discipline and enthusiasm. And thank God, because Jesus sees all of our efforts, our faithfulness at work will be rewarded by Jesus in his best way for us. And so this week, whether the opportunities before us feel much or they feel meager, go into your places of employment and serve the Lord. Yes, in and through this church, but in and through specifically your work this week for his glory and your joy. Let's pray. God, teach us what it means to work for you, to work with zeal, to be faithful in what you've given us our time, our energy, our money, our wealth, God. It all belongs to you. We've handed it over to you if we are a genuine Christian. And that might be scary, God, but help us to do so with a confidence that says you see the sacrifice and you reward the sacrifice, God. May we grow into greater faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.